I had a high school football coach who once taught me an important life lesson. In one of the first practices of the season, he said, if I yell at you all the time, it's a good sign. If I stop yelling at you, it's a bad sign. Now this took place in the dark ages, when high school coaches were expected to yell at their players all the time. The point my coach was making, of course, was that he was not going to waste his breath on a player who did not factor into Friday night's game plan. If he was yelling at you, it was because you mattered to him. There was a portion of that football season that I really wished my coach would stop yelling at me. And as providence would have it, there was a portion of that season when I desperately wanted him to start yelling at me again. And I learned through that series of events a very important lesson that I've applied over and over again in my life. It's a principle that works pretty well within families as well. Children do not usually like to receive correction and instruction from mom and dad. But you know that the saddest of all children are those who fail to receive parental direction. A few years ago, I read a survey of incarcerated teens, fill in the blanks. These are teens in detention. And they asked these teens, what do you believe you are most missing in your life? What was not there that you needed? What would you expect on that list? What would be at the top, the number one? Love, respect, money, opportunity, unhypocritical parents, all of these things I'm sure factored into all of their minds to one degree or another, but you know what these troubled teens said they needed more than anything else? These are kids in jail. What they needed more than anything else in life at the top of the list was guidelines. Amazing, isn't it? They said what we need is someone to tell us what is right and what is wrong and to enforce the rules. In the best sense of the word, they wanted someone to yell at them. In the best sense of the word. They recognized that nothing is worse than the painful silence of neglect. How glad we should be this morning, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we are not orphans of neglect. Our Heavenly Father speaks to us. In His infinite love for His children, He instructs us, He corrects us, He teaches and rebukes and counsels and warns and issues commands that He expects us to obey. As a loving Father, God always issues His directive word to His people. And we see this theme playing out in Scripture over and over again, don't we? God creates Adam and Eve, and what does He do? He sets them down in this garden and He says to them, there is a tree in the middle of this garden, you must not eat from it. As we go to the cross of Jesus Christ, we have the great redemption that God wins for His people through Jesus. And what does Jesus do as He leaves this world? He says, go into all the world and make disciples teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. God loves us enough to tell us what to do. 
He loves us enough to give us guidelines and direction to counsel and to rebuke and to command and to warn. And in this same pattern, God follows his deliverance of Israel from Egypt with, guess what? Words of instruction. It really shouldn't surprise us about God. In chapter 3 and verse 12 of this book of Exodus, he says to Moses, you're going to come back here with the people. You will worship me here. And here on Mount Sinai, God meets with the people and issues his word to them. Chapter 19 and verse 16, you remember perhaps from last week as we looked at this passage together, that on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, announcing the king, God is there, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder, in a thunderous voice, that is. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So God meets with Israel here, now assembled at the foot of the mountain, and trembling with fear, the Israelites watch and they listen as God issues ten words, ten moral commands for his chosen people. We see the preamble to this decalogue, these ten words, in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All these words in Deuteronomy 4 and in Deuteronomy 10, they are referred to as the ten words. The ESV translates that, those passages, commandments, with the marginal reading as words. But the Hebrew word that's used is word. There are ten words. We use the word commandments, but really, literally, the ten words or the Decalogue. Now this Decalogue in the preamble starts with the the statement in verse 2 that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The moral law of God is rooted, listen and hear, it's rooted in His saving grace. We must grasp this at the very beginning. It's rooted in His saving grace. God has saved His son Israel from slavery and as a loving father He issues words of guidance to His people. At issue is who God is. I am Yahweh, Elohim. I am Yahweh, your God. And the issue is what God has done. I have redeemed you from Israel and Egyptian slavery. So the context of God's law, the preamble that brings us into it, is God's grace, God's love, God's redemption, God's choice of his people. Israel, hear me. I have demonstrated my perfect love for you by redeeming you from Egypt. So now, in keeping with my love, I issue my words to you. They are my gift to you. They are your life. In every way they bespeak my love for you as my covenant people, I have plans for you. I have desires for you. And my redemption tells you how I love you. Hear my words. These ten words. 
In chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, we read of the people's answer to God that all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They are ready and willing to hear the law of God. So the Decalogue is not then an arbitrary list of rules calibrated to make Israel's life miserable. They're not words that were forced upon her by God for no reason. They're words that Israel realizes at this place she needs. She needs the guidelines and instructions of her Creator, and God in His grace and mercy provides just that. And so they are words of loving relationship between God and His people. Israel does not become God's people by obeying these laws. Here, Israel, are ten words. If you will keep them, I will adopt you as my people. That is not the way it works. Here, Israel, are ten laws that come from my love and my redeeming grace in your life. You will obey these words to demonstrate that you do belong to me. I love you. The Decalogue is described then for us in verses 3 through 17 and could take an entire series of sermons right here. But before we dig into them, we need to first of all at least acknowledge the debate as to which are the ten words. Now we know there are ten because Deuteronomy speaks of ten words in chapter 4 and in chapter 10. But in this graphic here before you, you can see the different divisions of uh, the Ten Commandments. The Jewish division starts with the first command, the first word being verse 2. And remember, it's not the commandments so much, though they are that, but the word of God, verse 2. That's not a problem if you understand the Hebrew. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For the Jewish uh, tradition, that's number one. Uh, That leads to, I guess if we could say a weakness, is that the first word is the only one that's not imperatival. That is, it's the only one that's not a command. It's not a big problem. Uh, But that's how the Jews divide it. Roman Catholic and Lutheran traditions take verses 3 through 6 as one command. So you shall have no other gods before me and not make any carved image is all one command. And then their uh, numbering, of course, differs. Then I have in the shaded areas the places where there's disagreement. So verses 3 through 6, taken as the first command, the Roman Catholic and Lutheran tradition doesn't get down to number 2 until verse 7. The Reformed tradition is verse 3 is command number 1, and verses 4 through 6 are command number 2. And after that place, then, There is agreement with the Jewish tradition all the way down. The difficulty with the Roman Catholic and Lutheran view is verse 17. We have there divided into two commands. 9 and 10 are both about coveting. One of the biggest problems is that the book of Deuteronomy switches house and wife. Therefore, switching command 9 and 10, if this is really command 9 and 10, It's doubtful to me that that is switched at the end, but rather that by switching house and wife, it's proving there in Deuteronomy that it's all one command. So this is not a large issue, but I thought I'd just bring it up to us that we understand that the ten here is somewhat conjecture as to which of the ten, how God views this as ten words, and I say that simply to be honest with the text. We'll follow... Uh, The Reformed tradition, which is closer to our understanding of Scripture than either of these others, but again, it's, it's not really a large deal. What is clear 
in this division is that it divides into two. That is, in the first segment of the law, we have Israel's vertical relationship with God. You can just skim down through verses 3 through 11. We're dealing there with Israel's vertical relationship with God. And then as you look at verses 12 down through 17, we're looking at Israel's horizontal relationship with one another. So let's look first of all at that first segment, that first division, Israel's relationship with God, verse 3. Command number one, in our understanding here, at least as we're going to develop it, command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Before me, that is in addition to me, I think is the best understanding. God's people cannot worship him and worship other gods in addition to him. They have been trying it from the very beginning. But you can't do it. All other gods are an illusion. He alone is God. And He alone must have our undivided devotion. This is God's absolute demand of His people for our good. No other gods. The second command is against idols. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Clearly very connected to the first command. And this is why uh, others would see this as, as a single command. And that's really not a major issue at all. But it's very connected. A command against idolatry. I don't believe this is a command against religious art or a command against symbols such as a cross or a banner, that these are somehow uh, idolatrous. This is a command against what Kaiser calls imagined resemblances of invisible spiritual beings. Imagined resemblances of invisible spiritual beings. This would include images of God himself. To cast God in an image presents Him as a non-hearing, non-speaking, non-mobile, non-feeling God like all the other gods. And this is blasphemous. One of the greatest statements made about idolatry that I've ever read is Augustine who says, and I draw from Hamilton here, he says, Augustine says this, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. Idolatry is worshipping anything that ought to be used, or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. The motivation to keep us from idolatry, from elevating anything to the place of worship, and denigrating the place of God, is found in the middle of verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who love me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The command against idolatry is sourced in the nature of God, and God is a jealous God. This does not mean that God is envious of others. What it means is that all other gods are imposters that destroy his people. And God loves his people too much to stand for that. I've used similar illustrations in the past, but I hope they stick in your head and you take them with you. Let's imagine I'm at a park with my daughter. And I go into the 
restroom there at the park for just a moment, just duck in and come back out to find her in the parking lot standing next to a man who has his car window pulled down and he is offering her candy and I hear him saying that he loved her very much and that he would really like to be her daddy and could be a much better daddy than hers. And she is poised to get into the car with him right at that moment and the only thing that I have at my distance is a word. Am I a godly father if I stand there and watch? The only godliness that would be appropriate in my life right that then is for me to be a jealous dad. And to issue a word of warning and say, no, don't go there. God cannot stand idly by while his people give glory to other gods and listen to the lies of the gods of this world. He cannot stand idly by and watch us self-destruct. He is a jealous God because he alone is God. He is our daddy. No one else is. And so as a jealous God, he says you will not worship other gods. And I will visit upon the disobedient discipline. But I will show steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now there's a whole cottage industry that has grown up around these verses and this visiting of generational sins and all of this kind of thing. I would warn you against such thinking. Uh, those who become overly enamored with this begin to try to sniff out generational sins and there's a whole psychology of how to out work them out of your family and it's basically a bunch of hocus pocus and I would just leave it alone. This is proverbial language. It's simply saying that God will judge those who hate Him and even more zealously shower His steadfast, loyal love upon those who love Him. Ezekiel 18 sets it all straight. I'm not sure why it's so quickly dismissed by those who insist on this generational sin idea. But Ezekiel 18 makes it quite clear that God visits the sin of the individual upon the individual. There's not some idea that there's some unique curse and propensity to certain sins within families. Now, do we see those patterns? Certainly. Is that what's going on here? No. Is this an equation? It only goes to four generations? What about the thousands of generations that he blesses? Do they cancel out a whole lot of four-generation sins? It's ridiculous. Leave it alone. But the point is, not to get hung up with this hocus-pocus and uprooting all of these generational sins. The point is to look in the face of our Creator and to worship Him as God alone. That's the point. And there are consequences for not worshiping Him. And there are consequences for seeing Him as God alone. If in the depth of your heart, the song that was sung here earlier, that He is God and God alone, if that resonates within your heart, if you find love for that idea and you long to see that evidenced in your life every day, there are benefits to that. God brings His grace and mercy to bear in the lives of those who realize that God is God alone. And He warns us here not to get out of line. There's too much at stake. The third command 
in verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To use God's name flippantly or meaninglessly is the idea. To use it in any way that empties it of glory. It includes swearing. You can fill in the blanks. It includes using God's name to express mild surprise. That is epidemic in our culture. To use God's name to express mild surprise. Using it flippantly or to support a false promise with it and on it would go. But do not use the name of the Lord in vain. The fourth command is to observe the Sabbath. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. The Sabbath derives from the Hebrew word for rest. Israel is to distinguish the seventh day of every week as a day of rest from labor in order to celebrate God's rest from creation on the seventh day. And Deuteronomy adds also his deliverance from Egypt as Israel is delivered from her bondage and no days off as slaves. God gives a day off and evermore she was to remember God freed us from Egypt and God ceased from his labors on the seventh day. I quote one commentator who says well here, there is a place for human dominion within the created order. God made us to work. Genesis 1 verse 28 and following into chapter 2 particularly. But Sabbath keeping puts all human striving aside, recognizes the decisive role of God in creation, and provides for a weekly oasis to rest back in the arms of reality. I didn't create this world, and I cannot subdue it in my own strength. I give a day of rest to God to refresh, to reflect, and to consider that He is God. I don't know that our Sabbath keeping is by any means above reproach, but that is what we are doing right here, right now. There's a thousand things we could all be doing at this very moment, but we have set this time aside to sanctify it, to make this day a holy day in which we gather as God's people to say, God is God. We gather for a special time at a wedding. We gather for a special time at a funeral to say that the people involved are important and that what is going on here is very vital and important. We gather one day of every week to stand in the presence of God and to say, God matters. And we rest in His grace uniquely on this day. And we notice here as we continue on at verse 10, in the middle of verse 10, on it, that is on this day, you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This applies to everybody within the culture, God says to these Israelites. So, 
as we look at this, as it's known, first table of the law, God alone is God. He is to be worshipped and honored as God alone in every aspect of Israel's life. In a word, Israel was to love the Lord her God with all her heart and soul and mind and strength because that's who God is. Love Him. We look at that second table of the law and it deals with relationships with one another. Verse 12 Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We turn now from the vertical relationship to God to the horizontal relationship and here particularly between parents and children. This is a command that is not limited to dependent children. Now, the the ears begin to tingle of all within our assembly, I'm sure, who are dependent children. You're living in the home of your mother and father. But all of our ears should tingle here. This isn't directed to little children. This is directed to children. Anyone with a parent. Now, Paul becomes more um, uh, specific in Ephesians chapter 6. But here, we're dealing simply with the idea of anyone with a parent. If your mother or father is living, honor them. If they are dead, then honor them dead. That is, as far as possible, until you die, respect what they taught you and did to nurture you and care for you and appreciate them as far as that is possible. The prospect of longevity here is not a blanket promise, nor is it a threat. God's not saying you honor your parents, you will live long. You've got my word on that. That's not the case. This is proverbial. Honoring one's parents is a way of living in sync with God's creative order. And that generally leads to prosperity and health and will in the promised land particularly. As he mentions here at the End of verse 12. In the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What land is that? That's the land of promise to the Israelites. You will have a long life there as you honor your parents. Indeed, in Ezekiel 22, 7 and 15, we learn that it is dishonor of parents that leads to captivity on Israel's part. God is serious about this. If we have parents, we are to honor our parents. And our hearts grieve when we consider how dishonorable some parents are. And it's hard as children to honor our parents when they are not above reproach. And parents, we need to take that to heart. To know that this is a two-way street. We can insist that our children obey us in all things and live a life of shame. That's not honoring the law of God. And those of us who are children need to know there's no person on earth, perhaps, who will ever be more exasperating to us than our mom and dad. I'm just speaking the truth. Fair, right? Many times we find our parents to be the most exasperating people on earth. It's true all the way around. What we need to do is God knows our heart is we need to choose to honor them. To respect what we can respect, to take what is good, and to lift up their name, not tear it down. As you judge, so you will be judged, says Jesus. Let's remember that. Honor your father and mother. 
It's not an easy task, but it is a way that we can show that we are the people of God. Do not murder, verse 13. You shall not murder. Do not murder, that is, do not kill somebody. It means do not solicit or hire someone to murder in your stead, and do not commit suicide, and much more on that later. We'll get to that point later, but it does not apply to killing a beast. When it says do not kill, it's not talking about don't kill an animal. Genesis 9 and verse 3 would indicate that we are given that privilege by God. It's not referring to self-defense in certain situations where one's life is threatened, Exodus 22. It's not referring to accidental killing. There's really not much you can do about accidentally killing someone. Certainly there are issues in manslaughter where there is negligence that God punishes, but uh, if you accidentally kill someone, that's not a violation of this law as such. It's, I don't believe, a law against just war. Just look at Israel's history. But it is saying that to take a human life is to act in God's stead. We better be absolutely sure that we act in God's stead when we take a life. This law is routinely, daily, on a massive scale, violated in our culture as the unborn are snuffed out moment after moment after moment in this land. But in a thousand other ways, we live in a culture of murder. A culture of death. Where man stands up and plays the role of God. It seems to me, particularly in this area of abortion, that one of the leading supports is women's, what is it? Choice. Women's freedom. That is a freedom to stand in the place of God. To take a life. It's mind-boggling to those of us who think so differently, but a woman's had her choice. I realize I don't speak in every situation, but in the vast majority, she's had her choice. She's had her freedom. And now she steps in again to violate the law of God and says, you get out of here. I will do what I want to do with my life. It is a direct violation of the nature and character of God. It is wicked. And may we pray for its end. We are not to commit adultery, verse 14. It is evil to break the covenant of sexual fidelity between a man and a woman. God is the world's greatest advocate of sexual freedom. He is the greatest advocate of sexual freedom. A freedom God knows is found only within the confines of a loving marriage between a man and his wife. I didn't write the book, and I didn't invite, invent sex. God did. He loves sexual freedom. But it comes with narrow strictures. This speaks of no sexual activity taking place outside of marriage. Implied here is a word from God against illicit sexual lust and fantasy, against flirtation, against masturbation, against fornication, and against idolatry. God says no. Verse 15, you shall not steal. This command assumes the right of private property, it's not merely a natural right, however, it is a 
All wealth is God's who distributes it to whom he chooses. Therefore, theft of any sort is an assault against God's will. It is an act of willful ingratitude and a violation against God's goodness to others. Do not steal. Do not take what belongs to another, or you step in the way of God. There is to be no false testimony. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God's people are never to use speech to unjustly harm the reputation of others. Whether in a court of law or around the water cooler or at recess, we're not to use words about other people that tear them down and defame them. This is not a command against proper judgment of behavior, as other scriptures make quite clear, but it's against such forms of speech as gossip, spreading of rumors, malicious conversations, and false accusations against others. Such speech is rampant in some churches. Such speech is rampant in some homes. We need to put it to rest. Our speech should build one another up. There is fair and proper judgment. That is God's judgment. But again, as with murder, when we take a life, we need to know that we act in God's stead. And so it is here, when we speak the truth, we need to know that we speak in God's stead. His truth. Not tearing down. Not using our speech for selfish purposes and self-promotion. And there is to be no coveting. Verse 17, God's tenth word. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's admit it, it's very tempting, isn't it? My neighbor has three really beautiful donkeys in his shed. Wow. They can really look good. We see it everywhere, don't we? Particularly in a materialistic world, there's so many opportunities to say, I want that. We need to remember that every good and perfect gift is assigned by God. Therefore, to lust for something that belongs to someone else is again to oppose the will of God. It's interesting in all of these concepts on the horizontal level that we step into the place of God as we relate to one another. Therefore, to lust for something that belongs to someone else is to stand in the place of God and say, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you've assigned me. I don't think it is fair. This is a command against any form of envy or jealousy or discontentment with what one presently has. It speaks volumes in our world in our consumer world of wealth. So we are called in the second table of the law to love our neighbor as ourselves and to let God be God as he rules over others. Ten words from God for his children. Ten words of a loving father to his children. We find in verse 18 the epilogue to the Decalogue. 
The ending here, verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off. With powerful displays of natural phenomena, the Israelites trembled at God's word. They were fully committed to obey all that he had said, chapter 19 and verse 8, but they were terrified by his presence at Mount Sinai, and so they offer an interesting proposal to Moses, verse 19. They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They are hearing, apparently, these words from God from God and they're saying we need a mediator we need somebody to stand between us and God and to represent us bring his words back but don't let us be in the presence of God this is scary they tremble with fear and Moses immediately responds in that very role verse 20 where he says to the people, Do not fear, for for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And as the people stand afar off, Moses draws near to the thick darkness where God was. Did you catch it there in verse 20? The play on words. If you're with me, look at it. Verse 20. Do not fear God. Or do not fear, because God wants you to fear. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you. What does he mean? Do not tremble in uncontrolled, cowering terror. That's not the point here. Know that God is God. And see in this power that he's displaying on Mount Sinai that he is God. But the point is not to stand around forever cowering and trembling with terror. What God intends is to get your attention that you reverence him and walk in obedience to him. Don't fear. God wants you to fear. He wants you to fear him with obedience. Now, if we could plow for a bit longer, I've wanted to spend some time just going through these ten words to understand them, to let them settle upon our soul. But let's continue a bit further and consider them as a whole. I think we must understand, as we pass this passage, that the Decalogue is representative. Von Rod calls the ten words signposts on the margins of a wide sphere of life. Don't get the idea that the ten laws of God, these ten words of God, are somehow all that there is. As the text develops, he will fill up much of what is here and fill in blanks all over the place. But there's more to it than that. We should also recognize that each of the ten words bespeaks of a wide range of implications. Now think of it, I draw upon Kaiser here again, excellent insight. He said if the eight negative commands were an end in themselves, then morality would be gained by inactivity, by just not doing these things, which as Kaiser notes is really just death. So when God says don't steal, there's something much more to it than just not doing something. 
There's a whole sense of the respect of the property and the place of others and a whole sense of contentment in my life and all that it involves. And we go on and on. Perhaps one of the most obvious to us and most clear is how Jesus deals with the command against adultery. We could look at this morality list here and say, I don't commit adultery. I've never have committed adultery. I fulfilled this law of God. In fact, I really don't even need to worry about it. Really, nobody knocking on my door interested in me outside of my mate, and I, this, I'm never going to commit adultery. I'm not worried about it. Is that what God's saying? You remember how Jesus takes this law and what he does with it? He takes the person who dismisses the law against adultery, saying, I'm fine there, and he comes right down to our heart and he pokes it with a knife. And he says, if you look at a woman to lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. There's something more than just these signposts. There's this whole world that swirls around them. Positively, this command from Jesus, or this statement of Jesus that we commit adultery in our hearts as we lust, is fleshed out in Ephesians 5. What is God aiming at here? Not just not committing adultery, but our very thoughts and words such that within marriage, that Christian marriage would be a place of devoted love and spiritual leadership and submission as a reflection of our redemptive relationship with Jesus Christ, a devotion that should show itself before one is married in a refusal to be flirtatious and to be sexually promiscuous. And within marriage, to show itself by obeying the will of God for husbands and wives. That all just hangs around. Do not commit adultery. We need to dig much deeper to get to the heart of what God is saying. That's a signpost. He's got a thousand miles for us to travel under each word. So these laws, these words are representative. They're secondly relational. We see this, and it has been emphasized from the beginning. But the law is epitomized in love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Think on that. Love. To love God and to love others is really what's at the heart of this. It is a relational directive. The Decalogue is a reflection of the nature of God and how we as creatures made in His image are to walk in fellowship with Him and with all creatures. We are to love all as we love ourselves. And we are to love God with every ounce of our being forever. This is what God is aiming at. A relationship with Him and others. The Decalogue is thirdly convicting, is it not? Particularly when we look at the fuller implications of the law of God, we realize that we fall short of obedience to God's, all that God intends. A pastor that I know visited a church in Minneapolis, a very large, influential, wealthy church, and the sermon of the day was on the Ten Commandments. And he said, you would have thought you were at a circus. It was just everybody was happy, and it was wonderful and peaceful, and as he left, everybody was just, everything was just so wonderful, these ten laws of God. And he said, I wonder if we didn't miss something somewhere. There was no conviction. There was no sense of heaviness at all within that assembly. We cannot sit through this passage and walk away self-content. If you are not under conviction right now, you should fear. You should really fear. 
because the Holy Spirit has not been teaching you through this message today. We cannot stand in the face of God's law and say, I'm okay. doesn't bother me any. When's this thing going to get done? Man, is this guy really going to noon? We need to know that we fall short of the glory of God in our own strength. And in the face of this passage, we should sense our utter need of a mediator to negotiate between us and God. We come in our sin. He stands in His holiness. We need someone between. And that's the great joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Decalogue. The Decalogue is fulfilled in Jesus. Praise God. For us, it is not ten words. For us, it is one word. One word who took on flesh and dwelt among us and bore the penalty of our sin, rising from the dead and becoming the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 12, 24. There was nothing wrong with the old covenant as such. The problem was that Israel could not keep it. She proved morally deficient. And if we were in her sandals, we would prove the very same. And we know it. As willing as she was, she failed, and so would we. But in his mercy, Jesus came to earth and lived the old covenant perfectly. Not just don't commit adultery. He never looked at a woman to lust. And on and on it goes. He lived it perfectly. It was God and God alone that would receive the glory in the life of Jesus. And he loved his neighbor as he loved himself. He never sinned. And he died as the sacrificial lamb of God to fulfill the requirements of the Mosaic law. Think of where we are today. This is where we do go from this place with joy in our hearts. Not in a self-satisfied way as those ten commands don't touch me, but in a grateful way when we know that we have come to trust the one who stands in our stead and gives to us his righteousness. I'd like us to look to the book of Romans for just a moment. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, as we consider how Christ has fulfilled the law and how He has given to us His righteousness, the Apostle Paul can write in Romans chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, that is for Israel, that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. How does unredeemed Israel have a zeal for God? She understood at least this. God's word has been given to us uniquely. We have a privileged position to know the words of God our Father as to what we are to do. The problem was, though pursuing God with zeal, she was, verse 3, ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. She looked at it as a righteousness that came from her as she obeyed the words of God. Aren't we privileged people? Our Father's telling us what to do. That means we're his people. We're unique. And so now, let's pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get going here and do the law of God and please God in our own strength. 
in our own righteous deeds. Paul says they missed the whole thing. Being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, they sought to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is, he fills it up. He completes it. It's signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus Christ. And the righteousness then comes not from us. This is what we should see as we stand before the law of God. It's not in me. But it's in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, the righteous requirements of the law are met for us. So that through progressive spiritual growth, they are increasingly met in us. There was nothing wrong with the law. And it is not as if God changed his mind about the morality of the law when he says that it is fulfilled in Christ. The problem is with us. We do not keep it. We violate the words of God. But let's go back to chapter 8 and verse 1 of Romans. Romans 8 and verse 1. Here is our great joy, the gospel of Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You stand at the foot of Mount Sinai before the law and you face God, you will fall short. But we can stand in Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in my life. That's joy. For those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, here's the great joy. I can stand as God's child. I can live in this world as the unique child of God by loving God with all my heart and loving my neighbor as myself. So I think two responses are pertinent for us and proper for us today. The first is repentance. As we come before God and hear His law, we know that we fall short. And the second is joy. To know that in Jesus Christ, those righteous requirements of the law are being fulfilled in me as the Spirit of God cleanses my life and as I am progressively sanctified. If that's not being realized in your life, if you are a believer, there's need for repentance and change if you do not know Christ as Savior. You must see that you have violated His law, that He will judge the sinner, but that His righteousness can be given to you as a gift through faith in what Jesus has done to pay your penalty and what Jesus has done to give you His gift of righteousness. Reach out today in the grace of God, calling on His power and strength and receive that free gift of grace. Father, we bow before you in awe at your law. But we bow, Father, in awe also of the Lord Jesus Christ and your great plan of redemption. 
how we praise you for your law. How we praise you that there is a word because we are your own. And I pray that we would seek it and obey it and that you would lead us as a church to repentance today and to rejoicing in Jesus. For any who are not saved, I pray that you would draw them in your grace according to your plan and timing to the gospel message. It's through Christ that we pray these things. Amen.